Good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. I'm always counted a privilege to open the Word of God with the people of God. So if you'd please take your Bibles now and open them to Philippians and stand with me, please, as we read the Word of God. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 9. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, take, we pray that you would take this passage of Scripture and implant it and apply it to our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of your nearness. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that joy that surpasses all understanding. Father, as you look upon this assembly, you see the hearts that are breaking and aching. You see the needs, you see the dilemmas, you see the issues, Lord. And we know that in your word and by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, there is comfort, there is joy, there is healing. And we pray for these things to be accomplished, Lord, today. We pray that your Son, our Lord Jesus, would be magnified. And we pray that we, your people, would be edified in the most holy faith that you have delivered to us. We thank you for it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. This little letter to the Philippians begins and ends somewhat as a thank you letter from the Apostle Paul to the church there at Philippi, which was just one of the many churches that Paul had planted. And he opens the letter there in chapter 1, thanking them. I thank my God for them. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He closes out the epistle in chapter 4, verse 10, where he's remembering their care for him. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now your care for me has flourished once again. So the letter to the Philippians is is indeed a thank you letter to a church that had assisted the Apostle Paul in his time in need, but it's so much more than that. Because when you have a man like the Apostle Paul, with the theological mind of the Apostle Paul, with the giftedness of the Apostle Paul, then the Philippians as well as us get a little more than a thank you card. The Apostle Paul would write elsewhere in one of his epistles that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. And that is certainly the case with this little letter to the Philippians. 
It's not loaded with doctrine like Romans. It's not loaded with reproof like Galatians. It's not loaded with correction like Corinthians. But there is plenty of instruction and righteousness here for us. In fact, it seems that the main theme that Paul wants to communicate and get across to them as well as us is how to have joy in spite of circumstances. And this can be seen throughout the letter. Now, I've entitled this message, Seven Seeds of Joy, and those seven seeds of joy can be seen right here in this nine verses of the last chapter. As we get into the text, it's important for us to remember and to keep in mind as we go through this passage the circumstances of the writer, the circumstances of the Apostle Paul that he finds himself in. We want to remember that he's imprisoned in a very dark and cold, damp Roman cell. He's facing execution for his involvement with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been abandoned by all but a few faithful followers and friends of the Lord Jesus. And yet here he is writing this letter to encourage other believers to rejoice. In fact, joy or rejoice or derivative of that word is mentioned at least 16 times in these four short chapters. I would submit to you that the Apostle Paul has the authority to exhort us to joy regardless of our circumstances. Because his circumstances are certainly less than ideal, yet he maintains this attitude of real and lasting joy. And there's a spiritual law that we want to remember. It goes like this. Happiness depends on happenings. For the world, so often, our happiness depends on what is happening around the world. If things are happening according to our plans, that will affect our happiness. If things aren't happening according to our plans, that will affect our happiness as well. But joy is so much weightier and deeper and greater than mere happiness. Joy is a constant, and joy is always based on a right relationship to Jesus Christ. That's where joy begins. That's where lasting and true, enduring happiness begins. You'll notice with me this first seed of joy found there in verse 1, that little phrase, and you can circle it if you want. Stand fast in the Lord. That phrase, stand fast, was a phrase that my Marine Corps drill instructors would use quite a bit, and it just meant stand ready. Be ready to receive further instruction. The Greek word is steko, and it pictures a tent stake being driven into the ground, being secured into the ground. For our context, it carries the idea of committed subjection to the authority of Jesus Christ. When I stand fast in the Lord, I stand fast in him. I am committed to him. I am steadfast in him. I am immovable from that rock that saves me. That's what it means to stand fast in the Lord. It carries the idea of a committed and continued obedience to Jesus Christ. It means that I stand for everything that he is and I stand for everything that he taught. And of course, in order to do this, I must know him. I must move beyond merely knowing of Jesus. Almost all America knows of Jesus. We must know him personally, personally, intimately, faithfully, loyally. I must know his word. The Lord Jesus would declare in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, same idea, and I in him will bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. 
So to stand fast in the Lord means that I stand firm in my commitment to Jesus Christ, irregardless of the circumstances. My Christianity is not based on circumstances. My Christianity is based on the truth. It is based on who Jesus Christ is. It is based on what he accomplished for me and salvation. I think a good illustration of this is found in the last few verses of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Jesus there says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, we always want to include that. Yes, we're saved by grace, but that grace does not mean we are negligent of human responsibility. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain descended as the rain will do. The floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. Steadfastness in Jesus Christ, standing fast in the Lord. That is the life that is built upon Christ, that hears his word and applies his word to our lives and lives by his word. That is what it means to be built upon the rock. The storms are always going to come. The wind is going to blow. The rains are going to descend. The floods are going to rise. But our standing or falling is all dependent upon if we're on Christ, if we're in Christ, if we're serious about Christ. When we stand fast in the Lord, we're able to weather the storms of life. And we're all mature people here. We know the storms of life are coming. They say that you're either in a storm, you've just left a storm, or you're about to enter a storm. They're there, and we need to remember the words of the Lord. And isn't it the storms of life that usually causes people that aren't in Christ to fall? Isn't that what causes so much pain and sorrow and destruction and disaster in the lives of unbelievers and the lives that aren't secure in Christ? They fall apart when the world falls apart because their joy and happiness is tied to the world. It's based on the world. But the child of God standing fast in the Lord, awaiting his word, ready to obey his his word, immovable in his convictions in Jesus Christ, will have lasting joy because his joy is based on the Lord. He's standing fast in the Lord. All too often a Christian or a professing Christian will forfeit their joy and their peace and their contentment because they're not standing in the Lord. They're not steadfast in the Lord. They're not standing fast in the Lord. They're not willing to wait upon him. They're not interested in obedience to his word. Usually selfish ambition or self-interest will bring about the pain and sorrow that they're trying to avoid. People will seek happiness to their own unhappiness. It's in seeking the Lord and finding the Lord and standing fast in the Lord that we find the joy that we're looking for. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 6, anyone who does not abide in me, is cast out as a branch, and is withered. That's the life that isn't standing fast. It's cast out. It's withered up. So the first seed we want to make sure that we're planting and cultivating, that we might have a harvest of joy, is to stand fast in the Lord. Just to take Jesus Christ seriously. To be passionate for Jesus Christ. To remain fully committed to Jesus Christ. When he blesses us, and when he allows us to enter into troubled times. We stand fast. We don't allow the circumstances to make us waver in our commitment to him. It's said that the harder the wind blows on the mighty redwoods, the deeper those roots go into the ground to make it stronger and more steadfast. And so should it be for the child of God. Storms of life should not make us fall away to Christ, but cling tighter to him to be more steadfast in him. 
The second seed of joy we want to look at there in verse 2 is being of the same mind in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Apparently these two women mentioned here, Iodia and Syntyche, were experiencing some type of friction with one another. And this friction was drying up their joy. It was drying up the joy there at the church at Philippi. These two ladies were saved. Paul declares them to be fellow workers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there seems to have been an attitude problem. There was some form of pride or self-importance that was creating a disagreement among them, and this was affecting their own joy and that of the fellowship. It was creating some type of bitterness. Many speculate that these two women had a competitive spirit, that they were striving for some type of preeminence within the ministry. And it stood out and it was noted. And a competitive and a contentious spirit is a sure way to lose joy and to have that replaced with frustration or jealousy or anger or bitterness. There may be some who sit here now that know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have your eye on someone else or on something else instead of on what the Lord would have you be concerned with. You remember that time after the Lord's resurrection and he was talking to Peter and telling Peter the way he would die and glorify the Lord. Peter immediately goes, well, what about him? What about John? He said, Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. Often we have to be reminded of that. Keep our focus on God's call upon our life. What is that to you, what they're doing over here or over there? You follow me. We can be preoccupied with another success instead of what the Lord has called us to. And if you're not in that place, take heed if you think you stand lest you fall. Because of our sinful flesh, it's so easy to find ourselves in a place like that. These were godly women. These were fellow laborers with Paul and the gospel. And yet there's that carnal friction going on there. And so I would desire to plant this seed of joy into your hearts. Be of the same mind. And to be of the same mind in no way means to be in mindless agreement with one another just for the sake of avoiding disagreements. There are still times when we contend earnestly for the faith, when we stand on the truth. To be of the same mind in the Lord simply means to have the same mind of the Lord, to have his mind, to have his attitude. Paul touched on this earlier in the epistle in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each of you esteem others as more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others, others, others. We are to be Christ-centered and other-centered. So to be of the same mind is an act of our will. It's an attitude that we must decide to have. It's an attitude that is willing to take the lower place. It's an other-centered attitude instead of a self-centered attitude. It's an attitude that looks to the interest in the ministries of others with the same zeal and passion that it looks towards its own interest. A person with this type of attitude isn't competing. They're not trying to grasp onto titles and to position and to power and a thing like that. They're looking to glorify God and they're looking to serve others. Again, a good illustration is found in this very epistle that we're reading. In verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul would write, Let this mind be in you, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And coming in the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Complete and total humility. And if Jesus Christ, who is holy God of holy God, did not consider that high and holy place something to be clung to, who didn't consider reputation or status as an important thing, and who for the sake of sinful man comes as a lowly servant, enters into poverty and into darkness, pouring out his life for you and me, how can we possibly think that we're more important than others? That our ministry is more important than others? That our goals or our reputation are more important than others? To be of the same mind is simply to be a bondservant. And a bondservant is to be a willing slave. And it begins with us being first a willing slave to God. Being fully and completely yielded to Jesus Christ. And then we'll find it's easier to be yielded and to put ourselves second when it deals with others. It's putting God's will above our own will. It's praying thy will be done and not my will be done. And the Lord Jesus gave us an example of that. I think a beautiful Old Testament illustration of this is found with David and Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read that Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now many of you may remember this scene. David has been anointed king. Saul, because of disobedience and unfaithfulness, has been rejected as king. David has just defeated Goliath and is saved today. And then here's Jonathan, Saul's son, and the rightful heir to the throne. Saul was the, or Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. Saul was his father. Recognizing although he is the heir to the throne, David is the one that is called. David is the hero of Israel this day. And then Jonathan, with incredible humility and without an ounce of jealousy, plenty of love and grace, gives to David his royal garments, which signifies and communicates that, David, I recognize God has called you. Although I'm the son of the king, you're going to be the next king. And I give my loyalty to you. He gives him his armor and his weapons, but above all, he gives him his loyal friendship. Jonathan became a bondservant of David because he was first a servant of God. And being a servant of God and being yielded to the will of God was more important to Jonathan than titles or thrones. And you look at this illustration of the Lord Jesus being almighty God, being born into poverty. He could have come as a prince. He could have come as a mighty conquering hero. He came as a peasant. He came as a poor man. He came without status. He came without royalty. And he yielded himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Or you look at this picture of Jonathan giving up what was rightfully his because he was more concerned with the will of God. And you look and you, how is this accomplished? How is a sinful human being able to do that? Well, I tell you, it's accomplished by a cross. It's accomplished by a cross in which the Lamb of God took upon himself your sin 
to pay the penalty for that sin, and then to deliver you from that sin, which would include all of the arrogance and all of the pride and all of the sinfulness and selfishness that keeps us from a life of joy or that keeps us from having these type of relationships that David and Jonathan had. But it's also accomplished by a cross that you must bear. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow Jesus Christ. All of the problems that Christians face within the Christian life is faced because they're not denying themselves, they're not taking up their cross, and they're not serious about following Jesus Christ. When we do become serious about that, and when we do get ourselves out of the way, because you are the greatest enemy to your Christian life, you must be crucified. The crowd yelled at Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That is a prayer we must make our own. We must be crucified with Christ, that we no longer live, but the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God. The world must be crucified to us, and we must be crucified to the world. If we're going to get on with it, if we're going to understand and possess this joy that Paul's talking about. Paul's the one that wrote that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is only by being crucified with Christ that we're able to exercise this type of humility. Not get caught up in these internal disagreements and petty arguments that go on within families and within churches. The great and great and lasting enemy to, to joy is sin and selfishness. The self must be dealt with. And if we want joy that is steadfast and that is heavenly, we must have this seed planted. We must have this seed planted. We must be of the same mind in the Lord, which means to have the mind of the Lord. We must seek this fervently in prayer. And then in verse 3 is the third seed to bring forth joy. Paul exhorts and encourages these believers, and he reminds them of something very important, something that we need to be reminded of if you are born again, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is that your names are written in the book of life. When is the last time that you truly rejoiced over the reality of your salvation? Often we talk so much about salvation, we're just so used to salvation, we forget to rejoice over salvation. How excited are you about the reality that your name is written in the book of life, a very book that is in heaven that has recorded your name for salvation? This is the first time that this term book of life is used in the New Testament. The only other place it's used is in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his holy angels. And then again at the end of Revelation in chapter 20, verse 15, If anyone not found written in the book of life was cast out into the lake of fire. There's a real book of life. There's a real heaven. There's a real lake of fire. And the more that lake of fire is real to you, the more you'll rejoice to know your name's written in that book of life. To put it another way, the book of life is the census, where all citizens of heaven have their names recorded. Earlier in this epistle, Paul said, for our citizenship is in heaven. And understand what that means. Our citizenship is in heaven. Hey, it's great being an American. It's great having American citizenship. It's greater still to be a citizen of heaven. Because you know what that communicates? It communicates that this world is not our home. 
This world is often responsible for sapping our joy. And to have and recognize and embrace our citizenship in heaven, to recognize our name is written in the book of life, is a cause for great joy. You need to meditate upon that. You need to remember that. This letter would have been read publicly to the church there at Philippi, to the fellowship. And those hearing it, including these two women that had some issue going on between them, would hear that your names are written in the book of life. And this would, or at least should, cause them a moment of pause to remember and to reflect on the reality of salvation. Are you saved today? Do you leave those doors knowing that if you die, you are going to heaven? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. They are put under the blood of Jesus Christ. Not only are they covered, they're removed completely by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. By his death and by his resurrection, you have secured entrance into heaven. He has done the work. He has finished the work. He declared from the cross, it is finished. Have you repented to God, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and been born again? Do you sit here today as a new creation in Jesus Christ? Old things are gone. All things have been made new. If you do, then you can rejoice. There should be no long faces, regardless of circumstances, because you're born again. You are saved. Whatever light affliction you experience in this life cannot be compared to the weight of glory we're going to have in heaven for all eternity. We need to remember that. To reflect upon this truth helps us maintain a proper perspective. Though all may reject me, though nothing may go my way, Though the finances are tough, though medical issues are tough, though all of those things that plague the world are there, my name is written in the book of life. I am saved from the wrath to come, and make no mistake, that wrath is coming. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is coming. Not a positive message, people don't like it, but it's there. The wrath of God is coming on a Christ-rejecting world. This country has so much blood on its hands. The judgment of God is coming. Is your name written in the book of life? Now, I know some will look at this. I have unbelieving friends and family members, and they say, oh, that's Sunday morning pie-in-the-sky talk. Christians go to heaven, all that. Doesn't change the reality of it. I'm going to heaven. When I die, I am going to heaven. I am going to be in the presence of innumerable angels, in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Make sure that you will be as well. And if you've recognized and acknowledged your sin, and you must recognize that, you must recognize that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, that you are a monster apart from Jesus Christ. We are dreadfully wicked. The Ten Commandments do not save us. They just show us how wicked we are. And when we recognize that, we turn to the Savior and we receive his salvation. And then you have that new life in him. Then your name is written in that book of life. And then that eternal life begins now, this moment. And no matter what it is you're going through, and I don't make light of whatever it is you're going through, we're all going through it. Whether it be economics or health or family or marriage or whatever it is. The most important thing is salvation. Are you saved? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If it is, there is joy now and for all eternity. If there is not, there is not only joy now, you won't have it now, and you will only have torment for all eternity. Hell is real. 
Make sure you settle that question. Where stand ye with the Christ? Dwight L. Moody used to ask anyone he had come into contact with. And then in verses 4 and 5, the next seed of joy is rejoice in the Lord, and coupled with that is the Lord is at hand. This is the seed of perspective. And if we have the right perspective, we will have the accompanying joy and peace. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, pay attention, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Don't look for joy and peace and happiness in the world. Look for tribulation in the world. Look for peace and joy and happiness in Jesus Christ. Here is where many people fail to achieve lasting peace and joy because they're trying to find it and maintain it in a world that lies under the sway of the wicked one. And though the world does offer temporary moments of joy and pleasure and happiness, it is as fleeting as the new car smell. It doesn't last. The word of the Lord to us is that in this world we'll have trouble. We'll have trouble. Don't be surprised by it. And don't try to base your happiness on a world that lies under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus said, in him we will have peace. And what is interesting is you go through this letter of the, to the Philippians... Over and over and over, like I said, that word joy or rejoice is mentioned 16 times and is always attached to in him. Rejoice in him. Joy in him. The joy and the rejoicing is always intimately attached to Jesus Christ. We have joy in him. Joy is established and maintained and perfected in Jesus Christ. The closer your walk, the more passionate your commitment, the more absolute your surrender the more sure your joy will be, the more complete your joy will be. Often you, when you find an agitated, disgruntled, mean-spirited, joyless Christian, it can usually be traced right back to where they're trying to find their joy. What their walk with the Lord is like. Their joy is based on circumstances that didn't work out, therefore their joy doesn't work out. Again, Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10 He said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And this world and this devil are always seeking to kill and to steal and to destroy. It's only Jesus Christ who gives life and peace and joy and he gives it more abundantly. This is the abundant life. Not he who dies with the most toys wins. That's not the abundant life because he still dies and those toys go to someone else. The abundant life is in Christ. Notice also in verse 5 we read the word, we read the phrase there, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord, the Lord is at hand. And we can look at this one of two ways. First is mentioned, our joy is in the Lord. And the Lord is at hand, meaning he is always near. Our joy is as near as our walk to the Lord, and the Lord is always at hand. He's never far from us. If he feels far away, it's usually because we've moved. He's always near, so our joy is as near as Christ. It's parallel to our walk, our our nearness to him. He is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. 
Secondly, though, the Lord being at hand speaks of his imminent return. We believe in the rapture of the church, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. There's not one biblical prophecy that has to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ can come back. His return is imminent. And if you truly order your life in the reality of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, your life will be so simplified. And a simple life is a joy-filled life. Simply less irons in the fire, less things on your plate to deal with. A simple life is a joy-filled life. And then the fifth seed in the seven seeds of joy is found in verses 6 and 7. And it has to do with prayer. Now many of you know this passage by heart. I think it's a trusted favorite among God's people. We need to be reminded of it. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. We become so used to these passages, sometimes we don't allow the full import or impact of them in our lives anymore. Because do you understand what Jesus Christ is saying here? What the Word of God is saying here? How many have you come in this morning anxious? But the word of God is be anxious for no thing. Be anxious for nothing. And I've inherited from my mother a very anxious soul. So I have to apply this all the time. Be anxious for nothing. But at all things through prayer. It's not just positive self-talk. I'm just not walking around rubbing my temple saying don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. It's be anxious for nothing but all things prayer. How are you at the discipline of prayer? The early church said we will give ourselves continually to the prayer and the ministry of the word. That was the early church. Prayer and the ministry of the word. That's simple. What's your prayer life like? Your Christian life will never rise above your devotional life. Are you serious about prayer? I suspect if the record could be known, most Christians are forfeiting joy because they're simply failing to pray. They're carrying too much burden. We're invited here and elsewhere in Scripture to come boldly before the throne of God, before the throne of grace, to cast all of our cares upon him, for he cares about us, to find grace in the time of need. The Christian life is a life of faith. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you can come before the throne of grace? Do you believe that you can cast your burdens upon him and he cares about you? Do you believe that God truly does not want you to be anxious for anything? As the brother had said this morning, take upon yourself the yoke of Christ. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. It speaks of having communion and conversation with God, entering into his presence with loving adoration. And supplication just speaks of asking for supplies. Supplication means supplies for the circumstances, supplies for the hour, things that we need. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that. Jesus said, don't worry what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. This is what the world chases after. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about these things. And notice also it says there, with thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing, but all things through prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Meaning not only are we seeking God and seeking his provision, laying all of our requests before him, but we are praising him and recognizing what he has already done for us. All that I have and all that I have accomplished, the Lord has done. 
The Lord has blessed me on every side. He has filled my cup and he has caused the lines to fall for me in pleasant places. We are to go to the Lord with thankful hearts, no matter what we're praying about. You have a reason to be thankful. Is your name written in the book of life? You have a reason to be thankful. You just count all of the things you have to be thankful. Explore the church outside the borders of the United States of America and then see how thankful you are. Explore how some believers are living in abject poverty, filled with praise, and then come back with your head bowed a little bit. We have reason to be thankful. The more I know him, the more I draw near to him, the more thankful I am for him. He brings you to a place where you want nothing but him. And you are thankful. You show me a person that is not joyful that is thankful. Or a thankful person that's not joyful. Someone that's given to thanksgiving, they're not a cranky person. They're a joyful person. Thanksgiving and joy go hand in hand. Worry and anxiety is, are the greatest thieves of joy. I mean, just you know it by experience. Worrying about things, anxious about things, it saps our joy. But then you notice there in verse 7, of praying and seeking God, casting all of our cares upon God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You can't explain it. The greatest theological minds cannot explain the peace of God because it surpasses all understanding. And it guards our hearts and our minds where? In Christ Jesus. It's in him, the peace of God. It surpasses understanding. We ourselves won't understand it. We just know we possess it. Our situation may be an absolute train wreck, but the peace of God will be guarding our hearts, our emotions, and our minds, our intellect, our sanity. People will not understand how you can remain so calm when your life is being turned upside down. It's Christ. Remember when the storm-tossed disciples are being rocked all over the sea, and here comes Jesus walking on water. Peace. And the waves stop. He has command over the elements, and he speaks peace into those storms. That's who we go to. That's who we pray to. That's who we stand in. When we pray as we're instructed to do, God's peace surrounds our lives and guards our hearts and minds, and the result is joy. Folks, I pray that you are praying. I pray that you are serious about prayer. We can be caught up in a lot of church activities sometimes and feel pretty good about ourselves because we're in church every time the doors are open. But let me ask you, how often are you in your closet with the door closed? The greatest growth of my Christian life as helpful as the church has been, the greatest growth of my Christian life has been in the prayer closet, has been time alone with God. And then in verse 8, by the way, Pat told me to start this, and I've rebelled. But we are on, we're, we're on the sixth seed. He was telling me on the phone, and I was just drowning him out, going, okay, a clock. Verse 8, right thinking. That's another seed of joy, the sixth seed, right thinking. Paul, notice Paul says here, Whatever things are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good, of good report, virtuous and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Think on these things. Concentrate about these things. Because of the fall and because of the presence of sin, we have an incredible capacity to focus and to be preoccupied with negative things, with wrong things. 
Our minds are plagued with dark and base and vile things, and those things will steal our joy. Rumors and lies and gossip and corrupt things, impure and immoral images and things like that, complaining, often fill our hearts and minds. And nothing will sap our joy quicker than having our minds polluted with the garbage of this world. I tell you, I really have to apply this to my life. I've been a police officer for 22 years, and for a 10-hour shift, I sit with a little radio thing in my ear listening to 10 hours of police radio traffic, and it's not joyful. It's this guy beating his wife, this ex-husband breaking in the door, this guy's just been shot, these kids have just been molested. For 10 hours, that stuff is flowing into my head. You see why I have to go into my closet and shut the door. And look at the things that are true and noble and pure and lovely and just. We're surrounded by filth and darkness and garbage. Too many of us spend way too much time in this camp. And I'm not suggesting, nor is the Bible, that we bury our head in the sand or put on rose-colored glasses. The idea is not to be over-occupied with everything that is wrong. Or worse, entertained by it. The first thing many of us may need to do is simply to go home and shut off the television. Because you look at that list there in verse 8, and that list is everything that television isn't. True, noble, just, pure, praiseworthy. I don't see any of those programs on television. The next thing we need to do is open our Bibles. To be much in the Word of God. To allow the Word of God to get into us. Look at that list there in verse 8. Isn't that a perfect description of the Word of God? True, noble, pure, just, praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. Love and obedience to the Word of God will always equal joy in a life. You think of the person listed there in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. His leaf shall not wither. That's the blessed man. That's the blessed life. That's joy. His life isn't controlled by the negative things of the world and the counsel of the ungodly, sinners, scornful. His life is guarded and guided by the word of God, and in the word of God he meditates day and night. You meditate in the Word of God. You fill yourself with these things. And it will produce a joy in you that surpasses understanding. Hopefully you also notice that this list here in verse 8 describes our Lord. It's a description of the Lord Jesus. Isn't he true? Isn't he noble? Isn't he just? Isn't he pure? Isn't he lovely? Isn't he worthy of praise? Can't we spend some time meditating upon him? I promise you, you spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ like Mary did while Martha was busy in the kitchen. You'll have that peace. You'll have that joy. And then in verse 9, we see the final seed of joy in our closing application. I'm an exhorter. I was a Marine. I'm a police officer. I love to tell you what to do. It is a gift. These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw, these do. We can sit here and listen to sermons, and we can avail ourselves to Christian fellowship, 
But folks, there comes a point when we must do. These do. By the grace of God we do, but we do nonetheless. These do. You have just sat for close to an hour or so receiving and hearing and learning instruction from the Word of God how to maintain joy in your life. If you do not do these things, you will not have the resulting joy taught from these things. These do. Sermons and Bible studies will only go so far. James tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do you know how many Christians Sunday after Sunday are deceived? Because they come and they sit and they feel like they fulfilled their duty to God by enduring a 45 minute or hour sermon so all is good and out they go. You must apply it to your life. It must transform your life. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These do. There must be obedience in the Christian life if there's going to be joy in the Christian life. You go be a Christian that's disobedient to the word of God and tell me how joyful you're going to be. God won't allow it. He loves you too much. So I will close with this rather silly question. It's rhetorical to be sure, and I feel silly asking it. Do you want real and lasting joy in your life? Mm, No, not really. Of course we do. It's written into our constitution, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, we Americans pursue happiness in the American dream like the world tells us to. But if you want this real and lasting joy in your life, brethren and sisters, stand fast in the Lord. Be serious about Jesus Christ. Look, there's plenty of churches and Christians out there that simply are not. The time has come when they are not enduring sound doctrine, but they're drumming up teachers to satisfy their itching ears, just like the Bible said it would be. Jesus Christ said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the bent to that question is no. You know what scares me? Someone once said that Sunday after the rapture, the churches will still be filled. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are few who find it. Only eight people got into the ark. Stand fast in the Lord. Be serious about your commitment. Be passionate about your commitment to Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead and he secured your eternal life, and he's given you life not to live for yourself, but to live for him in the kingdom. You're a citizen of the kingdom. Be of the same mind in the Lord, which again is to have the same mind of the Lord. And this is developed This takes time, yielding ourselves to God, being in prayer, being in the Word of God. It doesn't happen overnight. Believe me, I wish that it did. It takes a while of God chiseling away at us, taking through some storms, taking us through storms. But he's developing within us the mind of the Lord, which is a humble submission to him and to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then no matter the difficulty, remember that your name is written in the book of life. If your name is written in the book of life. Now if you sit here today and your name is not written in the book of life, you are insane to leave those doors and leave it that way. And I would suspect when this service is over, there's going to be brothers that are part of this fellowship. I will remain around. And if you are concerned for your salvation or if your name is written in that book of life or not, we need to pray. And we need to talk. You need to repent. You need to turn from the wretched, vile, empty, dead life that you're living and turn to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins because you are a sinner and you need to be delivered from that sin and forgiven from that sin and washed from that sin. 
and be made a new creature in Christ. Remember your joy is in the Lord, not in the world. This world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the Lord is at hand. Can come back at any moment. Any moment the Lord can return. Be prayerful, not fretful. Be prayerful. Be disciplined in your prayer life. Folks, and I don't say it as guilt, or maybe I do, If you can sit for an hour or two in front of a television and you can't spend 15 minutes in prayer, that is a problem. That's simply a problem. Meditate on Christ and his word, the things that are true and noble and just and good and holy. Folks, take this in. Think about this. Know Christ. Study his life. Study his word. Look at the lives of Christians. Read biographies of Christian lives that have given their all to Jesus Christ. And then finally... These do, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen? Let's stand together and we'll pray together. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. But we know, Lord, that in you we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we pray, Lord, and I pray for these people here that you would strengthen even now that you'd fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit and give us the strength that we need. Gird us in your full armor. Cause us to stand in the power of your might. Give us that grace, Lord. Give us that single eye that puts all of its affections and all of its focus on heaven. God, help us to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to have the joy that Paul is speaking of here through your Holy Spirit. Help us to do these things, Lord. And we know that you will be with us, the God of all peace. We praise you, Lord, for being that peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the Lord's people said, Amen.